Welcome to the channel of Anna Purdue. Look for the link below the podcast and make sure to upload the podcast so you can multitask while hearing the message. And you can also look for the link and um, once you open it up, you can scroll over and select your favorite platform, Apple, Spotify, or Google, and just look for the channel Anna Purdue. A huge shout out to Angela E, Jolie R, Leonard L, Jody F, and Rodney T for your donations to the channel. If you're interested in helping this channel, you can do so by clicking the donation link found on my website at annapurdue.com. For many centuries, smallpox devastated mankind. In modern times, we don't have to worry about it thanks to the remarkable work of Edward Jenner and later developments from his endeavors. With the rapid pace of medical development in recent decades, the historic origins of immunization are often forgotten. Unfortunately, since the attack on the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001, the threat of biological warfare and bioterrorism has reemerged. Smallpox has been identified as a possible agent of bioterrorism, especially since the leader of the supposed free world likes to bring up the dark winter from time to time. It seems prudent to review the history of a disease known to few people in the 21st century. Edward Jenner is well known around the world for his innovative contribution to immunization and the ultimate eradication of smallpox. Jenner's work is widely regarded as the foundation of immunology, despite the fact he was neither the first to suggest that infection with cowpox conferred specific immunity to smallpox, nor the first to attempt cowpox inoculation for this purpose. The origin of smallpox as a natural disease is lost in prehistory. It is believed to have appeared around early prehistory at the time of the first agricultural settlements in northeastern Africa. It seems plausible that it spread from there to India by means of ancient Egyptian merchants. The earliest evidence of skin lesions resembling those of smallpox is found on the faces of mummies from the time of the 18th and 20th Egyptian dynasties. The mummified head of the Egyptian pharaoh Ramses V bears evidence of the disease. At the same time, smallpox has been reported in ancient Asian cultures. Smallpox was described as early as 1122 BC in China and is mentioned in ancient Sanskrit texts of India. Smallpox was introduced to Europe sometime between the 5th and 7th centuries and was frequently epidemic during the Middle Ages. The disease greatly affected the development of Western civilization. The first stages of the decline of the Roman Empire coincided with a large-scale epidemic, the Plague of Antonine, which accounted for the deaths of almost 7 million people. The Arab expansion, the Crusades, and the discovery of the West Indies all contributed to the spread of the disease. Unknown in the New World, smallpox was introduced by the Spanish and Portuguese conquistadors. The disease decimated the local population and was instrumental in the fall of the empires of the Aztecs and the Incas. Similarly, on the eastern coast of North America, the disease was introduced by the early settlers and led to a decline in the native population. The devastating effects of smallpox also gave rise to one of the first examples of biological warfare— 
During the French-Indian War, Sir Geoffrey Amherst, the commander of the British forces in North America, suggested the deliberate use of smallpox to diminish the American Indian population hostile to the British. Another factor contributing to smallpox in the Americas was the slave trade because many slaves came from regions in Africa where smallpox was endemic. Smallpox affected all levels of society. In the 18th century in Europe, 400,000 people died annually of smallpox and one-third of the survivors went blind. The symptoms of smallpox, or the speckled monster, as it was known in the 18th century England, appeared suddenly and the sequelae were devastating. The case fatality rate varied from 20% to 60% and left most survivors with disfiguring scars. The case fatality rate in infants was even higher, approaching 80% in London and 98% in Berlin during the late 1800s. The word variola was commonly used for smallpox and had been introduced by Bishop Marius Avanchus near Lausanne, Switzerland in 570 A.D. It is derived from the Latin word varius, meaning stained, or from varus, meaning mark on the skin. The term smallpox, spelled P-O-C-K-E-S, pock, meaning sack, was first used in England at the end of the 15th century to distinguish the disease from syphilis, which was then known as the great pox. It was common knowledge that survivors of smallpox became immune to the disease. As early as 430 B.C., survivors of smallpox were called upon to nurse the afflicted. Man had long been trying to find a cure for the speckled monster. During medieval times, many herbal remedies, as well as cold treatment and special cloths, were used to either prevent or treat smallpox. Dr. Sideham treated his patients by allowing no fire in the room, leaving the windows permanently open, drawing the bedclothes no higher than the patient's waist, and administering 12 bottles of small beer every 24 hours. However, the most successful way of combating smallpox before the discovery of puncture treatment was inoculation. The word is derived from the Latin inoculare, meaning to graft. Inoculation referred to the subcutaneous installation of smallpox virus into non-immune individuals. The inoculator usually used the lancet wet with fresh matter taken from a ripe pustule of some person who suffered from smallpox. The material was then subcutaneously introduced on the arms or legs of the non-immune person. The terms inoculation and variolation were often used interchangeably. The practice of inoculation seems to have arisen independently when people in several countries were faced with the threat of an epidemic. However, inoculation was not without its attendant risk. There were concerns that recipients might develop disseminated smallpox and spread it to others. 
transmission of other diseases such as syphilis via the bloodborne route was also of concern. Inoculation hereafter, referred to as variolation, was likely practiced in Africa, India, and China along the 18th century when it was introduced to Europe. In 1670, Circassian traders introduced variolation to the Turkish Ottoman Empire. Women from the Caucasus, who were in great demand in the Turkish Sultan's harem in Istanbul because of their legendary beauty, were inoculated as children in parts of their bodies where scars would not be seen. These women must also have brought the practice of variolation to the court of the Sublime Port. Variolation came to Europe at the beginning of the 18th century with the arrival of travelers from Istanbul. In 1714, the Royal Society of London received a letter from Emmanuel Timoni describing the technique of variolation which he had witnessed in Istanbul. A similar letter was sent by Giacomo Pellerino in 1716. These reports described the practice of subcutaneous inoculation. However, they did not change the ways of the conservative English physicians. It was the continued advocacy of the English aristocrat Lady Mary Wortley Montague that was responsible for the introduction of variolation in England. In 1715, Lady Montague suffered from an episode of smallpox which severely disfigured her beautiful face. Her 20-year-old brother died of the illness 18 months later. In 1717, Lady Montague's husband, Edward Wortley Montague, was appointed ambassador to the Sublime Port. A few weeks after their arrival, in Istanbul, Lady Montague wrote to her friend about the method of variolation used at the Ottoman court. Lady Montague was so determined to prevent the ravages of smallpox that she ordered the embassy surgeon Charles Maitland to inoculate her five-year-old son. The inoculation procedure was performed in March 1718. Upon their return to London in April 1721, Lady Montague had Charles Maitland inoculate her four-year-old daughter in the presence of physicians of the royal court. After these first professional variolation procedures, word of the practice spread to several members of the royal family. Charles Maitland was then granted the royal license to perform a trial of variolation on six prisoners in Newgate on August the 9th, 1721. The prisoners were granted the king's favor if they submitted to this experiment. Several court physicians, members of the Royal Society, and members of the College of Physicians observed the trial. All prisoners survived the experiment, and those exposed to smallpox later proved to be immune. In the months following the very first trial, Maitland repeated the experiment on orphaned children, again with success. Finally, on April 17, 1722, Maitland successfully treated the two daughters of the Princess of Wales. Not surprisingly, the procedure gained general acceptance after this last success. Now, knowing this, obviously, this is an example of how this is supposed to work. This is a perfect example of how science should work. So, 
how using a tried and true method to save lives as is meant to do, but in 1918, a strange treatment did not go so well. The 1918 Spanish influenza pandemic killed up to 50 million worldwide. In New Zealand, the death toll was just over 9,000 and Dunedin, 223 people perished. That would be the equivalent of 45,000 deaths nationally in 2020 and over 400 in Dunedin City. The fact that we have suffered nothing like those tragic numbers is a testament to excellent public health policies and good science, or that's what they tell us, right? Our forebears in 1918 lacked the resources we have today. The pressure inhalation sprayer on display at Tatu was based on the idea that inhaling a zinc sulfate spray would provide protection against the influenza virus. In fact, it may have weakened resistance by damaging throat and lung tissue. It was more like inhaling bleach. Dunedin's inhalation chamber was set up in the old post office building on the corner of Water and Bond Streets on November the 7th, 1918. It was a small room, relatively airtight, holding 20 or 30 persons, and the air was impregnated with the vapor of zinc sulfate. Each batch remained in the chamber for 10 minutes, and the persons treated were instructed to breathe through the nose at first and then breathe through the mouth. <laughs> this sounds like a perfect way to spread infection, the opposite of social distancing, but I digress. Thousands of people took advantage of the treatment each day. Additional chambers were established around the city to cope with the demand. The 1918 crisis was short and sharp in Dunedin. The first infections appeared in early November, but by early December, the pandemic was largely over. The main Dunedin inhalation chamber closed on December the 12th, 1918. Perhaps that's why it left so little impression on our historical memory, the high death toll notwithstanding. The spray inhaler at Tatu is one of relatively few surviving artifacts to recall the most devastating public health crisis in New Zealand history. Now, this was an effort from the local leaders to heal the citizens, even though it was kind of kooky. But what about an outsider going into a country to use a healing modality as a way to experiment on a genocide exercise? A peer-reviewed study published in the highly respected Elsevier journal eBioMedicine has revealed that the DTP vaccine unleashed by the Bill the Gates from Hell on young girls in Africa killed ten times more of them than the disease itself would have. The paper, commissioned by the Danish government and the Novo Nordisk Foundation, was published back in 2017, though it has not received nearly the attention it deserves. In essence, it exposes the man from hell as a genocidal murderer who has committed heinous crimes against humanity. 
led by Drs. Soren Wingle Morganson and Peter Abey. The study looked at the combination diphtheria, pertussis, which is whooping cough, and tetanus vaccine, which was discontinued in the United States back in the 90s due to thousands of reports of death and brain damage. Despite widespread punctures, the Great Game India Journal notes, the United States and other countries are still experiencing large pertussis outbreaks. Prior to the publishing of this study, the World Health Organization, who had never bothered to conduct a trial looking at puncture treatments versus non-puncture treatment health outcomes, which would have been necessary to determine whether the DTP puncture treatment was truly safe and effective. Even so, the man and his wife, the Gates from Hell, arguably the evilest people living today, pushed the drug on innocent African babies, including in Guinea-Bissau, where half of all children die before the age of five. Compared to children in Guinea who did not receive the man from hell's deep TP puncture, children who did were found to have died at ten times the rate of other children. The puncture was also found to make puncture-treated children more susceptible to other deadly diseases that unpuncture-treated children do not typically contract. The study itself declared that no prospective study has shown beneficial survival effects of DTP despite being the most widely used puncture treatment. All currently available evidence suggests that DTP puncture may kill more children from other causes than it saves it from diphtheria, tetanus, or pertussis through a puncture treatment claims even though it claims that it protects children against the target disease it may simultaneously increase susceptibility to the unrelated infections so what else is in that i have to question Ugh. none of these matter from the man from hell though who continues to financially punish nations for not complying with his poison puncture programs the man from hell has also been caught trying to bribe nations to push more poison puncture programs on their populations using mandatory programs, if necessary, to achieve compliance. Gavi, which is funded by the man from hell and the British government, has further infiltrated India's healthcare policy-making mechanisms, which is now aggressively pushing the current poison puncture treatment on Indian people. Wherever brown and black people can be found, in other words, the man and his wife from hell are there working to inject them with all sterilizing DNA-altering chemicals in the name of public health. The puncture apparently compromised their immune systems. Hmm, where have we heard that before? Great Game India explains, wherever black and brown people can be found, Gates from Hell is there to puncture them with poison. There is good reason for those in India to feel this way. Although, with uh, today's education system, it looks like they're including black, brown, and white people 
in their experiments, doesn't it? A recent report published by Health Impact News shows that a puncture empire built on lies can only go on for so long, and India is one of those countries where the couple from Hell Foundation and their poison puncture empire are under fire, including a pending lawsuit currently being investigated by the India Supreme Court. If you aren't aware of the key players in the poison puncture mayhem being driven into African countries, they are the World Health Organization, the Couple from Hell Foundation, PATH, which is Program for Appropriate Technology and Health, funded by the Couple from Hell Foundation, and GAVI, Global Alliance for Punctures and Immunization, also funded by the Couple from Hell Foundation. All four of these organizations will now be expected to explain themselves due to a writ of petition originally submitted to the Supreme Court of India in 2012 by Kalpana Mehta, Nalini Bonnet, and Dr. Rukumini Rayo, which has finally been heard by the courts. The petitioners stated BMGF, PATH, and WHO were criminally negligent trialing the poison puncture on a vulnerable, uneducated, and underinformed population, school administrators, students, and their parents who were not provided informed consent or advised of potential adverse effects or required to be monitored post-inoculation. And guess what? We're experiencing that right here in the United States today. Very, very similar. Furthermore, though absent from most mainstream U.S. media outlets, the Economic Times of India published their report in August 2014 stating that young tribal girls were tested with HPV poison puncture. This involved not a handful of children, but 16,000 individuals in Andhra Pradesh, India, where they were given the Gardasil poison puncture. Narayana Kumar reported that within a month of receiving the poison puncture, many of the children fell ill, and by 2010, five of them had died. Another two children were reported to have died in Vadodara, Gujarat, where another 14,000 tribal children received the poison puncture with another brand of the HPV puncture, Cerevix, manufactured by GlaxoSmithKline, who incidentally has been accused of dumping polio poison into a Belgium river. Consent forms to administer the HPV poison puncture were illegally signed by wardens from youth hostels showing that the couple from hell prey on the indigent without parents. For those who had parents, most were illiterate, and the true potential dangers of the poison puncture were not explained to them. SAMA, an organization in India which promotes women's health, discovered this insidious and this insidious crime, and they reported it. But only now will this man from hell and his cronies have to answer for their misdeeds. I mean, this many years later, he's been getting away with it. 
Approximately 120 girls reported epileptic seizures, severe stomach cramps, headaches, and mood swings of those who didn't die. Other girls receiving the Gardasil poison puncture have experienced infertility. The SAMA report also said there had been cases of early onset of menstruation following the poison puncture, heavy bleeding, and severe menstrual cramps among many students. The standing committee pulled up the relevant state governments for the shoddy investigation into these deaths. It said it was disturbed to find that all the seven deaths were summarily dismissed as related to poison puncture without in-depth investigations. The Couple from Hell Foundation declared their little poison puncture project a total success. I guess it was, considering he's the king of eugenics. I guess the Supreme Court of India will decide that now. Sometimes science takes it way too far. Scientists are literally, today, trying to edit our genomes. CRISPR is a genome editing technique that allows scientists to make precise edits to any DNA by altering its sequence. When using CRISPR, you may be trying to knock out a gene by rendering it inactive or trying to achieve specific modifications such as introducing or removing a desired piece of DNA. Gene editing with the CRISPR system relies on an association of two proteins. One of the proteins, called Cas9, is responsible for cutting the DNA. The other protein is a short RNA, or ribonucleic acid molecule, which works as a guide that brings Cas9 to the position where it is supposed to cut. The system also needs help from the cells being edited. DNA damage is frequent, so cells regularly have to repair the DNA lesions. The associated repair mechanisms are what introduce the deletions, insertions, or modifications when performing gene editing. However, many scientists announce we are just ready for, (laughs) are not ready, we're not ready for human embryo editing. (laughs) Of course we're not. We never should be. But one scientist exercised this knowledge anyway. The world has been startled by the irresponsible experiment of He Jin Kwai, who used CRISPR to genetically modify human embryos. There is a phenomenon of moral luck in medicine and its bearing on the limits of simple judgments of the kind. Everything that ends well is well, or someone broke the rules and is therefore blameworthy. The risk involved in scientific and medical experiments are often brushed aside when they turn out well. The clinical application of CRISPR in the human germline is presently too risky to be used without more preclinical research and unacceptable without broader societal support, which justifies the call for a moratorium by the scientific community. However, such policies do not determine how to assess cases where someone was willing to take such risk beyond all rules, guidelines, and regulation and then succeeds. 
The policies, including the proposed moratorium, are as unanimous as the undesirability of current applications of clinical germline editing as they are about the potential importance of this research. What if this potential is achieved by breaking the rules? The paradox of moral luck impinges on this debate. It is time to distinguish between moral responsibility and the societal consequences of medicine. When it comes to our rights to refuse these modalities, there is a precipice of Supreme Court rulings. Plenty have argued against the legality of puncture mandates reaching the Supreme Court many times, but the courts have routinely protected the rights of states to require punctures in the interest of public health. In Jacobson v. Massachusetts, justices held that a health regulation requiring smallpox puncture was a reasonable exercise of the state's police power that did not violate the liberty rights of individuals under the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. The Supreme Court recognized the possibility of adverse events following punctures and the inability to determine with absolute certainty whether a particular person can be safely punctured, but it specifically rejected the idea of an exemption based on personal choice. Doing otherwise would practically strip the legislative department of its function to, in its considered judgment, care for the public health and the public safety when endangered by epidemics of disease. The Supreme Court said this. In Zucht v. King, the high court ruled against the plaintiff who used a due process 14th Amendment challenge to argue against city ordinances that excluded children from attendance if they failed to prove they were punctured. SCOTUS ruled that these ordinances confer not arbitrary power, but only that broad discretion required for the protection of the public health. Did SCOTUS know the gene editing eugenics program was over the horizon when he, they issued this ruling? VAERS data from the American CDC shows that as of August 26, 2021, already half a million people suffered severe side effects, including stroke, heart failure, blood clots, brain disorders, convulsions, seizures, inflammations of brain and spinal cord, life-threatening allergic reactions, autoimmune diseases, arthritis, miscarriage, infertility, rapid onset muscle weakness, deafness, blindness, narcolepsy, and cataplexy. Besides the astronomical number of severe side effects, the CDP reports that approximately 16,000 people died as a result of receiving the experimental puncture. However, according to a CDC whistleblower who signed a sworn affidavit, the actual number of deaths is at least five times higher. This is what the CDC healthcare fraud detection expert Jane Doe officially stated in a sworn affidavit, I have over the last 25 years developed over 100 distinct healthcare fraud detection algorithms, both in the public and private sector. When the poison puncture clearly became associated with patient death and harm, I was naturally inclined to investigate the matter. It is my professional estimate that VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System Database, while extremely useful, is underreported by a conservative factor of at least five. 
On July 9, 2021, there were 9,048 deaths reported in VAERS. I verified these numbers by collating all of the data from VAERS myself, not relying on a third party to report them. In tandem, I queried data from CMS medical claims with regard to these uh, punctures, treatments, and the patient deaths, and have assessed that the deaths occurring within three days of puncture are higher than those reported in VAERS by a factor of at least five. Rights Freedoms WordPress has this to say, We are facing something so evil that none of us can stand at the sidelines as a neutral onwatcher any longer. So far, many have remained silent out of fear for losing jobs, finances, position, respect, or friends. We must understand, however, that when we don't speak out now, we will lose far more jobs, finances, and friends. We will lose our very humanity and become programmed slaves without the ability to think or feel individually. We are in a position where the world leaders are comparing a gene-editing program with a medical modality, which in fact are two distinctly different exercises. The former SCOTUS rulings have set us up to be in a position to be subjected to their orders. I don't know about you, but I like my genes just the way my Heavenly Father Creator made me. If we don't rise up, we will end up exactly like the children and young girls in Africa and India. Keep screaming from the rooftops. Commit to sharing what you have learned about the dangers of what this poison puncture is truly all about.